Uh, it has put me in a little bit of a quandary. Uh, you'll notice that your, uh, uh, your bulletin has a somewhat different kind of title, uh, which suggests that there are a lot of things that are kind of interesting, a little bit flexible. Uh, the um, uh, title that I was given uh, is a very friendly one, How Do We Rob You? <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and I had actually been uh, working on the passage and reflecting on it, and um, I uh, uh, pleaded a subtitle, uh, which is Closing the Generosity Gap with God. And um, it is a part of the dialogue that uh, the Lord engages with uh, his people. It is a part of the way that the prophet actually um, uh, gives his message from the Lord to the people, that there is a kind of question and answer dynamic that occurs. And uh, it suggests to us that uh, God is interested to converse with us. Uh, to ask us questions and allow us to ask questions back to him and to clarify. And um, that uh, suggests to me that we all uh, need to be listening for God's voice and also have the freedom to engage in prayer, uh, sometimes even in uh, question and counter question, and sometimes even in challenge. The Lord is kind and gracious to hear us uh, and invites us to come close to him. I mentioned a little bit of quandary. Um, let me go a little bit further. Um, there's a book in my library by a man named Gary Friesen. It's entitled Decision Making and the Will of God, a Biblical Alternative to the Traditional View. And within that book, there is actually a chapter uh, in, entitled uh, Giving. And um, the challenge of that particular chapter is that um, it, along with the book, continues to challenge me in the assumptions that we sometimes make regarding uh, how the Old Testament speaks to us and how we as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, who have experienced a marvelous transformation and for whom many things are now new and how the Old Testament has been fulfilled within the context of Christ's life and ministry, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and the glorious transformation that he's effected in us. Um, it, it raises interesting questions. Uh, questions, first of all, about the tithe. And uh, I have this uh, question here. How do you apply Malachi 3, 6 through 12, when the New Testament doesn't actually command us to tithe? Important question to ask. What are the dynamics of how God lays claim to not only our lives, but all of those things with which he has blessed us? Friesen wrote that more than one stewardship Sunday sermon has been preached. And you might have been a fool this morning if you thought that I was going to be preaching on uh, how to give the tithe this morning. Okay, um, I will not be doing that, but I will be talking about some of the other dynamics that are involved in this passage. Many Christians actually aspire to give based upon the tithe, thinking that it is the biblical requirement. But Friesen actually says that there's nothing wrong with giving 10% of one's income to the Lord, but you can't warrant Christians giving a tithe from this passage. He observes that in this passage, the tithe was a command and failure to give it fully constituted theft from God. 
we have to keep thinking. This is about the law in the Pentateuch, the Old Testament law. And the challenge here is that if you do not abide by the law, then you are in violation of the law, and God can actually speak in terms of theft. Now, that's the Old Testament, and I'm thinking to myself, how have things changed as we have come under the glorious and good grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? Disobedience in the Old Testament would bring down a curse upon the Jewish believer. Obedience carried material blessing. Moreover, there was actually more than one tithe. And if you want to be biblical, well, the Old Testament actually calls for a tithe of all one's possessions of, uh, to the Lord for the temple and its service. And then there's a further tithe that was given on what remained for a festal meal in Jerusalem. And another tithe beyond that first and second tithe was uh, taken up every third year for the Levites and the strangers and the orphans and the widows. Deuteronomy 14 talks about that one. That's a triple tithe. Oh my goodness. Uh, when you calculate it out, it can be as much as 19% or perhaps even more, 22%, Gary Friesen says. My goodness, and our world is so expensive as it is. Uh, my friends were telling me about how they are trying to help their uh, their son uh, find an apartment. And it's absolutely chilling how expensive apartments are. And how do you tie 22% when the bank is going to be asking for probably a whole lot more? Challenging. These multiple ties were statutory requirements and amounted to a, uh, a very significant amount. They were not free will. It was a part of the legal requirement. It was incumbent upon all uh, Old Testament believers who were a part of the nation of Israel to apply themselves uh, to this legal stipulation, this requirement. And so Friesen concludes that while the practice of tithing has some advantages, uh, that approach to, uh, to giving is not, uh, that, that approach to giving is actually not prescribed for Christians. The Old Testament pattern is no longer operational. Moreover, he says believers today couldn't actually even obey Malachi 3 and verses uh, 8 through 10 because the temple uh, was destroyed in 70 AD and everything has changed subsequent to that. Uh, one can't make simple equations that the temple has become the church. Uh, there are uh, many differences for all of the similarities and some of the transitions as the Old Testament looked ahead to the things that God had in store for his people. So even if we were to take the tithe as the New Testament pattern for Christians, which it is not, evangelicals would not be doing very well at all. Uh, because a recent uh, Christianity Today article observed that over the past 40 years, self-identified evangelicals have given between 2 and 3% of their income every year, which is not quite 10%. And uh, the uh, challenge is that uh, uh, we um, are uh, faced with the question, how, how do we apply this passage? When I first read Friesen's book, I actually penciled this into the margin. Hmm. So what is this passage at Malachi 3 good for? <laughs> Just interesting history? Question mark, question mark, question mark. And obviously the answer is no, 
It's far more than that because we are told in the New Testament that all Scripture, including this passage, is God-breathed and useful for us. And so there's a blessing for us here, but we need to discern as followers of the Lord Jesus how this passage speaks to us. It is relevant. It invites me actually to confess the truth about God and the truth about me. It asks me and invites me to reflect upon God's kindness to me against my deserving. And that he presses on me to see the costly generosity gaps in my life. And he graciously invites me to close that gap and to be a person who is available in heart and life to love him with my all. To obey his prompting, to prove him trustworthy, and to make his name famous. All of these things are actually said within this passage, and I think that they do stand as general principles that help us to understand and appreciate what a wonderful and great God we have, and what a marvelous opportunity there is for us to answer to the whole of the Old Testament in fulfilling the greatest commandment and the one that's like it, to love the Lord our God with our all, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Well, the first thing that we're invited to consider is the matter of confessing the truth about God and about ourselves. And I find that in verses 6 and 7. First off, to think about the truth about God. Well, the truth about God is that he is invariably consistent. He says at the very outset, I, the Lord, do not change. I am the changeless one. I'm the one that's reliable, that you can depend upon at every moment of your life. The truth about God is that he is consistent. At the very base of all of his dealings with you and with me is an absolute commitment and an unfailing love. Throughout Malachi and all of the Old Testament, God stands consistent in his relationship to each one of us and to the people of God of the Old Testament period. In the Old Testament, particularly thinking of Malachi, and you've, you've walked along with your pastor and with, I think, one or two other speakers who have spoken on the earlier chapters of uh, Malachi up to chapter 3 and verse 5, and you have heard over and over again that God is the changeless one that he is the one who has pledged himself to his people in a very wonderful way. I have loved you, says the Lord. I have loved Jacob, he says, at chapter 1 and verse 2. I am your father, he says, at chapter 1 and verse 6, and then again at chapter 2 and verse 10. I am your master, he says, at chapter 1 and verse 6. I'm your creator. Chapter 2 and verse 10. I, the Lord, do not change. I have loved you, Jeremiah writes, another prophet who says, this is the word of the Lord. I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. 
God doesn't change. He loves us. He is for us. He is our rescuer. He is our helper. He is our teacher. He is our God. And in the gospel, the love that was first begun to be experienced by his creation, humankind, continues to be experienced, except that it has been decisively expressed. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. You are loved. You are cherished. We are loved by God and called to be his holy people, the Apostle Paul says at Romans 1 and verse 7. He has demonstrated his own love for us, Paul goes on to say, in this, while we were still sinners, while we were unlovable, Christ died for us. The love of God. The love of God. His love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, Paul goes on to say at Romans 5. God has always been faithful. He has always been kind. He has always been generous. His mercy and His grace are consistent. He is not stingy. He does not hold back. He expresses Himself in ways that are absolutely astonishing and overwhelming because He has pledged Himself to us and His desire is to rescue us and to cherish us. He can be trusted. He is the trustworthy one. But there's a problem. It seems that we don't change either. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. You're like your father. Your father, Jacob, not your heavenly father. That's what God says here. Who was Jacob again? Ah, the cheater. The supplanter. The one who deceived his father and stole a birthright. The one who received a blessing when it was intended for his elder brother. You'll know from earlier messages in Malachi that drift can actually happen in all sorts of different ways. I actually had the opportunity to uh, hear one of the speakers uh, from the conference that was mentioned earlier this morning. Uh, Jeff Vanderstelt. Uh, who um, I think has uh, had over the last two years the responsibility of uh, the Mars Hill Church in uh, Washington State. Uh, took that uh, responsibility on as God's people called him to that ministry. And he is responsible in, in a number of ways strategically for encouraging God's people here on the West Coast as well as uh, throughout the world. 
written a number of books, uh, one of which uh, I was introduced to, which is Gospel Fluency, and it's uh, looking to be a very wonderful book. I've started dipping into it already. I had the pleasure of hearing him on Thursday evening as he encouraged numbers of folks who were part of small group ministries. Having been a pastor for more than 25 years, he puts our problem, the problem of the truth about us, in these words. I'm an unbeliever, he says. This is a pastor who's served church, the churches for over 25 years. He says, I'm an unbeliever. And so are you. He writes, I slip in and out of believing God's word about me and trusting in his work for me. Jesus gave his life to make me a new creation. He died to forgive me of my sins and to change my identity from sinner to saint, from failure to faithful, and from bad to good and even righteous and holy. But I forget what he has said about me. I forget what he has done for me. And sometimes it isn't forgetfulness. Sometimes it's just plain unbelief. I know these things. I just don't believe them. I'm an unbeliever. Not every moment, of course, but I have those moments. And I can say amen to that. Scripture says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. That's Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. Jesus Quotes that at uh, Mark 12. If I say, Lord, my preference actually is to love you with only my some. Uh, loving with my all would actually be rather taxing and inconvenient to me. So I'm hoping that you'll be okay with some. Then I'm in danger of my unbelief. Because that's not how God called me. Scripture also says, love your neighbor as yourself. That's Leviticus 19 and, and verse 18. But I'm in danger of my unbelief if I say I prefer not to overwhelm people with God's love through me, but to love them just enough to get what I want out of the relationship and not to disturb them and certainly not to upset them because that will upset me if they get upset at me. <laughs> Loving God with my sum. Loving my neighbor as myself, sort of. There's a curious kind of blindness that we have. Israel's drift in our passage was in how they were handling the resources that God had given to them. To love God with all the required financial strength would have meant a great sacrifice and probably living on the edge financially for them. There were people returned, the people settled, but they were feeling very much the newcomers. Actually, they were seen as intruders rather than uh, the people returned to their homeland. The local folks were very hostile towards them. Read Nehemiah and Ezra. Uh, read some of the other prophets of the earlier period moving forward, and you get the sense that there's tension. They come, but without a king. They come uh, to a very different set of circumstances. They come a broken people. They come a people that are, in many ways, uncertain. 
and uh, times are tough, and harvests have been poor, and perhaps pleading realism. Lord, we just would like a little bit of realism. You know, please don't be too hard on us in your demands. Presuming God's understanding, they shift the amount and the quality of what they gave. And pretty soon loving God less was good enough. And loving themselves more was the ingrained pattern. Lord, you'll understand, won't you? I'll love you with some of my all. God's response is, you've drifted from me. Do you see the gap? Close it. Bring your heart close to my heart. And he puts it this way, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me, God says. But you ask, how are we robbing you? And God's response is, in tithes and offerings, you are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. The hardness of the times, poor crops caused by pests and bad weather, it's talked about in verse 11, were actually not justification to love God only some, they were in fact a consequence of loving, loving God only some. You know, they were seeing it as an excuse when in actual fact it was God leaning in on them and saying, what you need to do is to love me more, love me with your all, and out of that, blessing will come. The encouragement in Malachi's day was to give the tithe that was required and to close the gap. Well, where are we if we come to this passage as followers of the Lord Jesus? In the New Testament, we do not have laws about giving, but guiding principles. The discipline of giving is that it is regular, that it is individual rather than corporate, that it is systematic and that it's proportionate. We give according to uh, our thoughtfulness and reflection, considering who we are, who we're identified with, who our Lord is, and how we might respond in ways that honor and give glory to Him. The objectives are to maintain the Christian ministry, to relieve the needs of others, and to advance the mission of the church in the world. These are the three great things that uh, our resources, our all, can uh, effect as God blesses. Our attitude, uh, attitude, the New Testament tells us, is far more important to God than the amount that we give. He wants for us to be cheerful givers, to be liberal givers, to be sacrificial givers, to be eager givers, to be willing, to be persistent, and to show integrity in our giving. All of this comes from 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, as Paul teaches the Corinthians what it is to be a generous people. And sometimes giving example and illustration from some of the churches in other regions, like Macedonia, where they have given in such an astonishing way uh, that uh, they are an example to a much wealthier church of what it is uh, to honor God with your substance. We betray where our hearts are when we are more invested in accumulating things for ourselves then we're interested in giving it to relieve the needs of others. 
That, of course, comes from the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus teaches at chapter 6 and verses 19 through 21. The greatest threat, the New Testament tells us, to generous giving is not poverty, but covetousness. Giving, the New Testament tells us, is the privilege of the believer, not a compulsive obligation or a burden. It's a joy and an opportunity. Well, this passage moves on in the final several verses, 10 through 12, to talk about the benefits of closing the generosity gap. And there are a number of things that I think we can say in terms of the benefits. Look at verse 10, the first part of verse 10, first of all. This benefit uh, in closing the generosity gap is that our heart will actually beat like God's does. At Malachi 3 and uh, verse uh, 10, uh, God says, Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Fill it up. Not so that God can keep it selfishly to himself, but that the worship of God and the satisfaction of the needs of those who serve and the expression of kindness and generosity to the needy can progress. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. God's priority was that the worship would be honorable, that those who served would not be distracted because of lack of support, and that the widow and that the orphan and that the alien would be fed. For followers of Jesus in the New Testament, care for one's family and for needy relatives actually answers to God. Uh, charity, as Gary Friesen says, begins at home. Why does he say that? Well, in 1 Timothy 5 and verse 10, we're told if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he is actually denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Wow. It's not a competition. Should I serve the Lord or should I feed my family? God's word says, feed your family first. Be a believer. Support and honor God by being a good provider. Paul writes further, uh, if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. Do you have folks in your extended family, your nuclear family and your extended family who have needs? It is your responsibility under God, the pastoral epistles say, to be honorable and to support those who have needs. We also need to align ourselves the scriptures tell us, with the support of those who are involved in ministry. Paul writes, let the one who has taught the word share all good things with him who teaches. That's Galatians 6, verse 6. And there are many other passages of scripture that actually affirm that. Paul says as much to the Corinthians, and First uh, Peter is a letter that speaks to the issue of leadership and uh, proper uh, support. Christian communities like the church at Philippi also sent financial assistance to missionaries so they might plant new churches. And another great priority of believers is to support impoverished fellow believers locally and abroad. Beyond this, when believers see needs in the wider community, uh, we should show practical compassion. 
I love the fact that uh, folks were out shoveling the walkways of the neighbors. That's a blessing. That is your expression of gratitude to God for his great salvation. And it's a way of loving people in your community. One way. But it can be multiplied many times over in all kinds of different expressions of practical compassion. Uh, we uh, ought, while we have opportunity, uh, Galatians 6.10 says, to do good to all men, but especially those of the household of faith. There's a priority, but it's not to the exclusion of those who live nearby, but who are not followers of Jesus. And so the pattern, if you look at it, is actually to give to those closest and to move outward from there in kindness and in acts of generosity. Well, that is the first benefit. The second benefit is that uh, this closure of the gap is going to allow us to trust in the changeless generosity of God. To show that we are truly believers. We actually do lean upon our Heavenly Father and find His faithfulness in the way we act, in the way we respond in the face of need. At verses 10 and 11, uh, God says, test me in this, He says. Test me in this and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I will prevent pests from uh, devouring your crops and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. That's a big promise. I'm almost a bit nervous because it sounds like a few TV preachers I've heard before. But you know, we do have to be careful here. This is not health and wealth gospel. This, in fact, is the promise of God to the nation of Israel. It's not promising you that you're going to have a much bigger bank account if you are faithful to God as though somehow being kind and generous is going to put God over a barrel so you can shake him down for a whole lot more. In actual fact, God's promise in Malachi's day was not that he would make individual Israelites rich, rather that he would give abundance of material blessing to the nations so that the needs of many would be amply supplied. Jesus' followers in the New Testament are actually invited to experience not great material wealth, in return for their giving, but the joy of entrusting themselves to God's sufficiency for their needs. Not superabundance of wealth, but enough to satisfy so there is godliness with contentment, which is what Paul teaches in the Philippian letter. Paul tells the Corinthians about the Philippians when he writes to the Corinthians saying, in the midst of a very severe trial, Their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord. And then by the will of God, also to us. Notice the pattern of the giving. First of all, I don't do a whole lot of calculating. What I do is I give myself to the Lord, and then I do the best that I can and give myself to the opportunity. 
He promises the Philippians as he writes to them, My God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. And that's not just cash and food. It's all of the riches and glory. Yes, there will be enough for food on the table. Yes, if you share together. Yes, if you collaborate in the opportunities to be kind and generous. God is faithful. You can entrust yourself to the trustworthy one. He will not fail you. The final benefit of closing the generosity gap is that it makes the name of God famous. It's another opportunity for us to brag on our Father. And you know what that's called? Witnessing. When you brag on God, you are lifting His name up and you're making Him famous. The final benefit is recorded in verse 12 when it says, uh, Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. All the nations, uh, folks that don't believe, the folks that look from the border or that perhaps are in the neighborhood, but they're not friendly to the gospel or to you. They'll look and they'll be astonished. They'll see what you are doing in your community of faith. And they will say, surely the Lord is great. Can you hear echoes of what happens later? They will know that we are Christians by what? Our love. A love which is extended one to the other. All the nations will call you blessed. Blessed by whom? By God, of course. Faithfulness and generosity lifts the name of God before a watching world. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. And what is that light? Well, he goes on to say that they may see your good deeds, your generosity, your closure of the gap between who God is and what he does and what you are in him and what you do. And they will glorify your Father in heaven. You will be making the Heavenly Father famous because of your kindness your generosity, and your love. What is Jesus talking about here if not the call to shine by doing acts of kindness so that people who are not believers will lift up their voices and praise the God of heaven, our heavenly Father, but as they're overwhelmed with expressions of his love and his kindness through us, Possibly their Heavenly Father as well. I'm reminded of uh, a story that um, I read about a man named Maxi Jarman. I'm quite sure I haven't told this to you in other contexts. It's been a long time since I've been here. But I remember the story of Maxi Jarman because he was an incredibly wealthy man. And he had the gift of um, being able to make money. 
But he was also captive to Jesus, and so he had an even greater gift of giving it away. He was terribly embarrassed um, that um, sometimes people would violate one of his protocols, which was, don't ever put my name on anything that I've donated to. I want to be completely anonymous. He gave away several fortunes. When he inherited his mother's estate, he gave it all away. And there were ups and downs in many of his businesses. He was an entrepreneur, and uh, businesses do go up and down. At a particularly low point, someone who was a reporter in town uh, came by to have a quick chat with Maxie Jarman. They asked a rather uncharitable question. They asked him whether he ever regretted having given away so much money. Um, the reporter was aware that he was having a very downtime financially. Maxie Jarman just thought for a brief moment and he said, You know, I don't regret it at all. I only lost what I kept. What I gave away is safe. Think about that. I only lost what I kept. What I gave away is safe. Let each one do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. We'll only lose what we keep. What we give away will be safe with God. And so I would invite you to think about some of the ways that you can be generous and kind. Some of the ways that you can close the generosity gap and show the family resemblance. Not to Jacob but to your Heavenly Father.